It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's Wednesday, so we're watching Prime Minister's Questions. And it's yet another day we're worried about a challenge to Rishi Sunak. Yes, there's going to be plenty of material, really, for the opposition leader Keir Starmer that he could use in terms of Conservative Party disarray as well as plenty of copy for the Telegraph newspaper. The paper has both the opinion piece from Simon Clark calling for the Prime Minister to resign to give the party a fighting chance at the general election, calling his leadership uninspiring. And then also some news from somebody who resigned only last week. Yeah, this strange twist from Lee Anderson telling the Telegraph he now says he should have voted for the Rwanda deportation bill last week rather than abstaining. Now, Lee Anderson quit as the Tory party chairman last week. Now he says he'd say yes if his old Tory deputy chairman role was offered back to him. Yes, this is a bit surprising. Um, In terms of Sir Simon Clarke, though, of course, he was actually a former minister himself. Um, You know, the the attack on Rishi Sunak, the former Home Secretary Priti Patel, saying that the um, op-ed piece is facile and divisive self-indulgence. But I do think that it points towards this idea of of quite a disintegration amongst uh, Conservatives in Parliament, you know, rather than a plan or something quite strategic about a leadership challenge, there's just a, a lot of kind of infighting. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a small number of, of mm. MPs who are openly expressing, extremely small, in fact, number of MPs who are openly expressing their dissatisfaction with Rishi Sunak as party leader. But it speaks to perhaps fears within the party now. They're looking at the polls, they're looking at the big clock counting down to that general election, and they're wondering, is there anything they can do yeah. to save the party to save their seats? I think that is sort of what Simon Clark was saying out loud. I mean, his most of his piece, actually, in The Telegraph is to do with the opinion polls. And he talks about Rishi Sunak has sadly gone, in his words, from asset to anchor. Um, so, yes, I think it's the polling that is really at, at issue here. Yeah, and look, this is something that's going to, we're, we're sure, come up in the Prime Minister's questions that we're going to be listening to as well. Mm-hmm. This, you know, coming at a time that Rishi Sunak could, would perhaps rather perhaps be focusing on tax cuts? Tax cuts, yes, um, but also the kind of fiscal plans for the government, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But maybe even defence might come up in PMQs today. Let's have a listen in now to Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join the Prime Minister in his comments about His Majesty the King and Her Royal Highness the Princess of Wales? 
and in his comments about Holocaust Memorial Day. Never again must be said more defiantly this year as it's said every year. Uh, Mr Speaker, last week we lost Sir Tony Lloyd, a true public servant who touched the lives of many people across the House and across the country. And I'm glad that his family were here yesterday to hear the many tributes to and memories of Tony. He will be greatly missed. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister's had quite a week. From endlessly fighting with his own MPs to collapsing in laughter when he was asked by a member of the public about NHS waiting lists. So I was glad to hear that he managed to take some time off. Can, can I just say, I wanted to the Prime Minister, I'm certainly going to hear the Leader of the Opposition. Those people who don't want to hear, they can certainly leave, because that's who it's going to be, so get it in order. Some of you are wanting to catch my eye again. It's not a good way to do it. Yes. Mr Speaker, I, I love this quaint tradition where the more they slag him off behind his back, the later they cheer in here. <laughs> Keep it going. I... And also, for this side, you can have a joint cup of tea. Come on, please. Mr Speaker, I was glad to see that he managed to get some time off yesterday afternoon to kick back, relax and accidentally record a candid video for Nigel Farage. <laughs> the only thing missing from that punishing schedule is any sort of governing or leadership. So was he surprised to see one of his own MPs say that he doesn't get what Britain needs and he's not listening to what people want? Prime yeah. Minister. Mr. S Mr Speaker. He talks about what Britain needs, what Britain wants, what Britain values. This from a man who takes the knee, Mr Speaker, who wanted to abolish the monarchy, who still doesn't know what a woman is, and just this week, and who just this week, one of his front benchers said that they back teaching divisive white privilege in our schools, Mr Speaker. Looking at his record, it's crystal clear which one of us doesn't get Britain's values. He spouts so much nonsense, no wonder they're giving up on him. <laughs> and, and, and even now, as his government crumbles around him and his own MPs point out he's out of touch, got no plan for growth, crime or building houses, the Prime Minister is sticking to his one-man Pollyanna show. Everything's fine. People should be grateful to him. The trouble is, no one's buying it. Does he actually understand why his own MPs say he doesn't understand Britain and that he is an obstacle to recovery? Five minutes. <laughs> Again, Mr Speaker, he, he calls it nonsense, but these are his positions, Mr Speaker. Right, and he doesn't want to talk about it, but this is the fact. He chose, he chose to represent a now prescribed terrorist group, Mr Speaker. He chose to campaign against the deportation of foreign national offenders, Mr Speaker, just like he chose to serve the right honourable member for Islington North, Mr Speaker. That's his record, those are his values, and that is exactly how he should be judged. Mr Speaker, in 2008 I was the Director of Public Prosecution putting terrorists and murderers in jail. He he was making millions betting on the misery of working people during the financial crisis. And we've seen this story time and time again with this lot. Party first, 
country second, safely ensconced in Westminster, they get down to the real business of fighting each other to death. The country forced to endure their division and chaos, the longest episode of EastEnders ever put to film. (laughs) Meanwhile, this week, we discover that Britain is going to be the only major economy that no longer makes its own steel that the government is handing out £500 million to make 3,000 steelworkers redundant, and that the parents of thousands are being told that his free childcare promise is nothing but a mirage. Isn't he embarrassed that the Tory party is yet again entirely focused on itself? Mr Speaker, yet more sniping from the sidelines. You can see... You can see... You can see... You can see exactly you can see exactly why his butteria hired him in the first place. But he wants to talk about these things. Even his own party are now realising that he simply doesn't have a plan for this country, Mr Speaker. The member for Dagenham and Rainer said it's difficult to identify the purpose of his leadership. And long-time and long-time celebrity backer Steve Coogan recently said he licks his finger, sticks it in the air, and just sees which way the wind is blowing. Even Labour Party know, Mr Speaker, he's not a leader, he is a human weather vane. It's not the sidelines, it's behind him that the fire's coming in, Mr Speaker. And he can try and blame the Labour Party all he wants. The difference is, I've changed my party, he's bullied by his party. And has he found the time in his busy schedule to work out why thousands of parents are being told by their nurseries that they won't get free childcare that he promised them. Prime Minister. Well, but, Mr Speaker, let, let's see what his party is offering the country. It's great, right. So we all know, Mr Speaker, he doesn't he doesn't have many he doesn't have many ideas for our country. Oh, oh, oh. I'm going to hear the Prime Minister. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he doesn't have many, but one thing we do know, Mr Speaker, is that you don't want to push it, do you? No. Do you know that he's committed to his 2030 decarbonisation promise, Mr Speaker, which they say will cost £28 billion, but I was reading about it this week. He says he's changed the party. One of his team called it an albatross hanging around their neck. That might have been the Shadow Chancellor, maybe, Mr Speaker. But he said, he said they're doubling down on it. All this ahead of a crunch meeting, we're told this week, for them to work out how they're going to pay for it. I can save them some time because we all know the answer. Higher taxes for the British people. Mr Speaker, there's only one party that crashed the economy. They're sitting right there. Mr Holmes, you've had your question already. Obviously, you don't want to remain for the resident. Here's some. Here's Mr 25 tax rises. And he's got nothing to say on childcare. Millions of families will have been listening for an answer, and they've got absolutely nothing. He announced that scheme a year ago, claiming it would get 60,000 parents back into work. Only on Monday of this week did he notice there were some, in his words, practical issues with that. (laughs) Eight weeks before its launch, parents can't budget, plan for work or make arrangements with their employers. And the Prime Minister's response is to say, it's all fine, it's the fault of the Labour Party. 
Is this merely a practical issue, or is it yet another example of him simply not understanding how life works for other people? Mr Speaker, we're delivering the biggest ever expansion of childcare in this country's history. Mr. Speaker, but while millions of parents will benefit from that, again, it's right that he should come clean with them about the cost that his that his plans will impose on all of them. He he goes on and on about the green promise, Mr. Speaker. He says he wants to keep it. He says he wants to keep it, but he doesn't have a plan to pay for it. What he's really saying is he'll scrap the borrowing associated, but he wants to keep the £28 billion of spending. So, for all those working families who are benefiting from our free childcare, he should come clean with them now. Why doesn't he come clean with them now? Come clean with them now and just be clear his plans mean back to square one and higher taxes for British people. Mr. Speaker, making steelworkers redundant and failing to provide childcare is not a plan, Prime Minister. It's a farce. It's a farce. And he may soon discover that with childcare, there's an IT problem. Nurseries haven't got the spaces, they haven't got the staff. There's a black hole in their budget, and it's eight weeks to go. That isn't a plan. And families across the country, well, they can laugh all they like. Families are making plans now. They laugh at it, of course they do. Families are struggling with a cost of living crisis, trying to work out the household budget, balancing spiralling mortgages, prices and eye-watering bills. And then, at the last minute, they are thrown into chaos because their nursery says they can't deliver the free childcare he promised. Now, he calls that a practical issue. But I preferred the honesty of whichever of his colleagues briefed to the Times that it was, and I quote, a complete shit show. Who, who, who was it who briefed that to the Times? Hands up. Will the Prime Minister finally realise? I'll decide how long the question goes. Those who wish not to hear it, I've told you the answer, and I'll help you on the way. When will the Prime Minister finally realise that the biggest practical issue facing Britain is the constant farcical incompetence of the government that he leads? Another week with no ideas, absolutely no ideas as country, and absolutely no plan. He talked about the cost of living, Mr. Speaker. He talked about the economy, but he never actually brings it up. And we all know why, Mr. Speaker, because things are improving and we are making progress. Wages now rising, Mr. Speaker. Debt on track to be reduced, and inflation more than half from 11% to 4%. Because he actually knows that our plan is working, and that his £28 billion tax grab will take Britain back to square one. And that, Mr. Speaker, is the choice. It's back to square one and higher taxes with him, or a plan that's delivering a brighter future with the Conservatives. So that was the Prime Minister's questions then, ending with the Prime Minister there. I mean, that really did feel like the beginning of some very personal, very pointed mm. attacks, actually on both sides. I mean, the Labour leader started by uh, recalling that video. Did you watch it? The woman in Winchester. Mm. Um, it was the Prime Minister out and about. She challenged him about NHS waiting times, about the strikes. It, it was a human interaction. The Prime Minister did struggle to sort of answer her questions 
it was a very difficult sort of exchange. Um, and the way that the Labour Party leader characterised it got a big shout down from the Conservatives um, because uh, Starmer accused the Prime Minister of sort of laughing at her. Um, not sure whether the video reflects that, but that was his view. Yeah, I mean, I look, there were, you know, comments made on both sides I think which yes. were taking taking version, versions of what may actually have happened and making political points with them but it certainly was a particularly uh, as personal attacks yes. I think from both sides on this says as well you know Keir Starmer saying that Keir, Rishi Sunak spouts so much nonsense no wonder his party's giving up on him and there were references to the infighting in the Tory party mm. as well including and we should apologise for the uh, strong language used yes. by Keir Starmer when making reference to comments been made about Rishi Sunak behind his back as well but this is, you know, coming becoming a, a greater theme, I think, through these Prime Minister's questions as well, where the Labour Party is trying to make reference to the, you know, the infight and the chaos mm-hmm, as they mm-hmm. see it within the Tory party. And Rishi Sunak sticking to his mantra that with Labour it'll be back to square one, there's no plan, and that the Conservative Party is, is the party with the plan as well. I was interested to see the childcare discussion came yes, up so much. Yes. So, of course, it's been a big topic of discussion. The first part of the government's help for childcare is supposed to come into operation in April. There's been a whole myriad of problems with it, IT among them, but the problem of there being actually supply uh, available, enough people available to be able to to provide those childcare hours. Yes, but also fundamentally pay of how much the government you know reimburses, you know, as well as the fact that we know many nurseries shut down as a result of the pandemic. You're right, the difficulty of de- delivering. Um, yes, and I thought that as well as this idea of, you know, with Labour you would get higher taxes, um, there was also the, very much some kind of culture war type issues that the Prime Minister raised, accusing the opposition Labour leader of wanting to abolish the monarchy, not knowing what a woman is, taking the knee. So I think there were both personal attacks and uh, sort of policy points too. Okay, well, that was Prime Minister's questions. With all the action in the House of Commons, though, you might have missed this yesterday in the House of Lords. Richard Hughes, the chair of the Office for Budget Responsibility, speaking to the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee, the Lords holding a hearing on Britain's debt sustainability. Have a listen to how Richard Hughes described the path for the public finances ahead. We're required to rely on what the government tells us is its desired path for spending on public services, so departmental expenditure limits. At the moment, it has those falling as a share of GDP, um, but there is the government provides almost no detail about how that is delivered. Um, the government did a spending review setting out detailed departmental spending plans um, for the year up until the 31st of March 2025. Um, beyond that, um, we know virtually nothing. Um, it is just two numbers, one for total current spending and one for total capital spending done by departments. Um, and I think some people have referred to that as, as, a, as a work of fiction. I think, that, I, think that's, uh, I think that's probably generous given that someone's bothered to write a work of fiction, <laughs> whereas the government hasn't even been bothered to write down what its departmental spending plans are underpinning the plans for public public services. That's Richard Hughes, chair of the OBR, yet pointing to what could be the economic dividing line in the coming election. The Tories may accuse Labour of wanting to raise taxes to pay for government spending. We heard it in Prime Minister's Mm. questions, but both Labour and the OBR want to know which public services the current government plans on cutting to hit its long-term targets. Yeah, absolutely. And the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, of course wants to address that debt burden by raising economic growth. And, um, you know, the, the Conservatives will defend themselves by saying, look, 
the tax cut that we enacted in autumn is significant and we have more plans for tax cuts. Hughes was also really scathing about that. I mean, if you talked about post-2025 being a work of fiction, he also said that the tax cuts that have come in or uh, that are about to come in, um, that they have been relatively modest in, in his words, that they are not the kind of changes that will solve the long-term fiscal challenge. I think that, you know, normally the independent OBR some very mm. pointed criticisms about the current government. And not the last I've, we've heard of mm. that subject, I fear, as well. Meanwhile, the Chancellor was meeting with executives from the UK's top banks yesterday. This was ostensibly part of a regular breakfast catch-up, but our banking saludes have said there are rumours of concerns in Downing Street about how low the value of bank stocks are. Shares in Barclays have fallen by 23% over the last year. NatWest, which is part owned by the government, has plunged by 31% over the same period. We've been discussing this with our city editor, Catherine Griffiths, and started by asking her what we know about what was said at that meeting. So the Treasury last week was keen to kind of play down this meeting and say, oh, it's just a routine thing. But I don't think that's quite right. Um, In Davos last week, there was sort of the first wind of of the meeting taking place. There was a sense that um, Frank Pettigast, who is the former Morgan Stanley banker, who is now very senior business advisor to Rishi Sunak was quite key to kind of getting this meeting set up. And um, certainly the the big bank CEOs and senior executives kind of scrambled towards the end of last week to kind of gather gather their ammo on on to make their arguments for this for this meeting. They did lots of prep. I was hearing last night um, from an investment banker that they called up all their investment bankers and asked for lots of kind of um, data to kind of back up their arguments about how banks are indeed quite lowly valued in the UK compared to particularly in the US. So mm. that was the kind of context going into it. Okay. I mean, what is the proposal of how to sort of improve this situation? I mean, valuations, although it particularly affects the banking stocks at the moment, is sort of an issue across the London market, isn't it? So is there any sense from this meeting that there is a plan or some way to think about low valuations? So exactly as you say, it was a bit of a strange um, premise for the meeting, I think, because yes, across the London market, um, lots of different companies are feeling pretty unloved. There's this sort of overriding feeling that they just aren't really the kind of buyers of the share. Um, People came out of the meeting saying it was constructive, um, but I think the reality is they feel a bit frustrated. I think there were various there were various sort of rumours swirling around. Um, one was that there was a hope that um, there would be a sort of frank discussion about some of the kind of regulatory burdens and political interference in the banking sector that we've seen lots of. Um, but I think in the end, the kind of the executives chose not to kind of go down that path in a sort of semi semi public forum with you know with their their peers there. Um, there was talk of the NatWest shares in particular because of course the government has said it wants to sell down some more of its shares to investors this year, and so of course the government would like to see NatWest shares particularly um, get a bit of a boost. But I don't think that was actually then formally put on the agenda, but certainly it was what people were thinking about going into it. And then there was that sense of 
actually, you know, we have some very big systemic banks in this country and it's really in everyone's interest for them to be sort of properly valued. But how you actually bring that about is incredibly difficult because a lot of it is just macro. It's the economy, it's uncertainty about inflation that, you know, the UK battles with, as as do many other countries when we look at the world and the uncertainty and the turmoil of what's happening, the sense that people are optimistic about interest rate cuts this year, but actually will they really come about? All these things massively affect bank share prices. But then if you really get to the hub of it, um, yes, UK banks are undervalued, particularly compared to the US peers. Um, and that, that sort of frustration that the government announced these Edinburgh reforms to sort of boost the stock markets and modernise markets. And they haven't really fed through anywhere really into higher share prices. So I think there's a desire to do something about it, but it's quite difficult to know what they can actually do. Yeah, where are we with the Edinburgh reforms, Catherine? Because they were they were promised as being quite a big reform to the financial sector, you know, removing EU era regulation, changing some of the rules around what banks are able to do, notably scrapping the bonus cap, among other issues as well. I mean, has it made a material difference? No, I, it hasn't yet. Um, I mean, I think they are sort of, they're slowly feeding their way into the system. Um, quite a few of them haven't yet been enacted. Um, there are things like changes to the ring fencing rules, which may mean banks can kind of be a bit more competitive in the way they use their capital. But a lot of these things haven't actually happened yet. And then, of course, we're all very well aware that this government is on the clock, that it may well not be the government for you know more than a year or so. And we've got the kind of huge distraction of of a general election campaign coming. We've got Mm. the budget coming in a few weeks. So that may be interesting to see if there's any further kind of pro-city, pro-competitiveness measures. But I think people largely feel that quite sympathetic to Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor. In, In the financial services sector, they quite like him. They think he's a sensible person. But they certainly think the Conservative Party over time has been distracted and unfocused and prioritising the wrong things. Um, And of course, you know, as we saw in Davos last week, they're increasingly turning their attention to what the Labour Party, Mm. if they do win power, will actually do as as the party in power in financial services. Yeah, indeed. I mean, also, one could take a little bit of issue, couldn't we, with the the focus on comparing UK banks to US banks, you know, why the comparison isn't actually to banks that are perhaps more similar to to the UK in Europe. But I mean, I I take all of your points very interesting. I mean, on, on the grapevine, there's also this idea when it comes to the Labour Party, as you mentioned, that they may be finalising their financial services policies actually quite soon. So again, this is, I mean, it's hugely important for, for the services industry that the UK is based on for, for the City of London, for financial services. What do you think might be in that, those plans or policies? Yes, um, certainly people will be very interested to see and, and particularly I think they'll be interested to see if, you know, if those plans and policies are, are actually explicit. Um, I mean, we may see something on, there's been talk from both parties, but I think Labour's quite interested in this idea of these very long-term mortgages, which could be quite interesting for people um, in terms of trying to get people onto the housing ladder who who can't afford it at the moment. And that 
could also be good for the banking sector. They would obviously love to be able to provide these products if they can find a way to finance them in a sensible way. Um, there's been a lot of dabbling around how to get more pension money into investments. Um, and there was talk in the autumn towards the end of the year about could you find a way to kind of make ICES a vehicle for kind of members of the public to invest in more growth assets. Um, the Conservative Party didn't really go down that path in the end. Again, I think Labour's very open to those ideas if it can find a way of doing them in a sensible way. I think it's it's going to be very keen to kind of try to, you know, grab this narrative and, and try and present itself as the party that's really going to do these things. You know, Jeremy Hunt has said a lot of things, but for various different reasons, priorities, the sort of huge pressure on him to cut taxes. He hasn't really gone down that path in terms of sort of retail financial services in a way that maybe Labour will will find it attractive to do so. So that was our city editor, Catherine Griffiths, speaking to us a little bit earlier about that meeting between the Chancellor and those bank executives. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Stephen Carroll. That's an anchor, Caroline, not an asset. (laughs) I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.